Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by USA Primed Frederick's Canvas. Supporting artists for 150 years, primed in Atlanta, Georgia, with the widest variety of primed and unprimed cottons and linens on the market. I've been using Frederick's for a long, long time, and it's always been a great canvas to work on in the studio. You can find Frederick's in your local art store or at frederick'sprintcanvas.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York and is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. You can get it in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. Enrico Riley is an artist and the George Frederick Jewett Professor of Studio Art at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. He currently lives in Norwich, Vermont. Enrico received a BA in Visual Studies from Dartmouth College and an MFA in Painting from Yale University School of Art. He's the recipient of a John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship, a Rome Prize in Visual Arts, an American Academy of Arts and Letters Purchase Prize in Painting, and a Jacobus Family Fellowship through Dartmouth College. He's exhibited work both nationally and internationally. Selected exhibitions include Jenkins Johnson Projects in Brooklyn, Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville, Arkansas, the American Academy in Rome in Italy, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond, Virginia, the Columbus Museum in Columbus, Georgia, the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas, the American Academy of Arts and Letters in New York City, the Hood Museum of Art in Hanover, New Hampshire, the Museum for the National Center of Afro-American Arts in Roxbury, Massachusetts, the Saatchi School of Art in Florence, Italy, and many more. His work has been reviewed in Art New England, The New Criterion, The Hudson Review, and The New York Times. I spoke with Enrico about teaching, visualizing music, issues of race, and what's going on with the world today, infusing painting with what's seen, and much more. Here's our conversation. Yeah, so um, I taught in the in the winter term, um, which was uh, ended. Let me see, ended in early March, uh, and so this spring I'm just I have my chairing duties, which are a twelve month uh, part of my job, and uh, and then I start teaching again in the fall. I'll teach beginning drawing and beginning painting, and then I teach another class in the winter. And then again, uh, I have a little bit of course release because of, of the chairing, yeah. the chairing thing. So is it you're just chairing in the painting department or the entire visual arts school? Yeah, no, I'm chairing the entire uh, studio art department. So, um, yeah, we have we have usually between 20 and 25 majors a year and probably have around in a normal year, maybe between seven and 800 just regular students that come through and take classes. Yeah, uh, we have sub areas in um, painting, drawing, uh, architecture, photography, printmaking, and sculpture. So we sort of have faculty in those areas. Yeah. Um, and well, so, yeah. oh, go ahead. I was, 
I was just going to say, is it difficult now with everything that's going on? Figure Because as a chair, you're probably trying to figure out logistics of everything. Or is that handed down from above? Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's definitely guidance from the administration. But when it comes to teaching, and there are some, some really nice interface between um, our campus IT and um, and sort of, uh, you know, the various sort of um, uh, uh, sort of learning groups, um, supplemental learning groups on campus. There's a lot of scrambling, but um, but really good planning, I think, in the beginning. Um, but in the end, I think, you know, nine out of 10, at least professors um, aren't aren't used to teaching online. Um, let alone sort of navigating all the technology. So um, it was a steep, steep learning curve. Um, and we sort of just sort of came together as a department. And there are some people who had more experience um, who really chipped in. And then some of our younger uh, interns who are, um, who are seniors who just graduated uh, and they stay on for an extra year to help. Um, you know, just because they're they're sort of immersed and digitally native, um, their responsibilities sort of shifted, and uh, um, you know, so we were able to cobble together a good a good support team and uh, a good scheme um, to not only teach and deal with IT, but also to uh, order materials and get them sent out to students. Um, yeah. So, so it was a it was a big logistical logistical. Um, uh, puzzle to put together, but um, but there are a lot of us who sort of jumped in and, and contributed. Right. Do you have a lot of um, professors reaching out to you saying like, hey, I'm nervous about the fall. Like, I don't know if I want to be in person. Yeah, I mean, I I <laughs> I have expressed that, you know, to, yeah. to a few people. Um, and it's, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, I've been teaching long enough where you you always get a little bit of nerves before you step in front of a class um but um but you know once you once you start teaching um it all comes back really quickly and you just get into your flow and you know there'll be a little bit of anxiety um moving into the fall and i assume we'll probably teach most of our classes again online in the fall but oh, okay. i think i think within a week or two you know you just sort of you're in that new environment and you start figuring it out. So, right. um, but, um, most professors have been pretty, pretty amazingly, um, just gung ho about just going in and, and, you know, there's a little bit of reservation from some people, but they, uh, they just, you know, they're, they're so good, um, at what they do. They just sort of figure out a way to, to make it work. So, yeah, I think so. I mean, that was, you know, the experience where, when I was teaching and it moved online, it seemed like everyone was even the most native to digital platform. People were able to sort of get creative. I mean, that's kind of our job is to be I creative yeah. and to think about ways to, you know, to teach. Teaching art is so interesting because, you know, you have that technical side of it where, you know, it's the nuts and bolts and it's the hands on part. But then right. so, so much of it is that ephemeral kind of the other stuff. Oh, you know? yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think that gets downplayed, you know, I mean, maybe in an introductory painting class or introduction to sculpture, it's, you know, a little more of like that technical side of it. But so much of what you learn, or at least when I was a student. Oh, yeah. So yeah. much of what I learned was that, you know, ephemeral. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in the beginning classes, I think, um, you know, you're trying to balance, uh, you know, giving sort of nuts and bolts information, um, how to how to manipulate form. But, you know, the the, the reality of it, and I think for um, people who have been been making art or making music or, you know, whatever discipline you're in, um, so much of how you animate the formal information comes from all of this ethereal stuff, all this subjective stuff. So um, it's sort of a parallel educational process of trying to get um, trying to get students to understand that, like you, you, in order to solve these problems, you have to be creative and you have to draw on your own experience and you have to um, have opinions about things and. Um, and in some ways, you can't teach it. You just try to facilitate an environment where students try to feel more comfortable taking those risks and making mistakes. But um, yeah, even in beginning classes, uh, you know, you got it. You got it. You got to sort of introduce <laughs> introduce yeah. that reality. Definitely. You know, the paradox. I think, or I don't want to. I. I'm constantly these days saying things and I feel like I don't want to sound like I'm getting older, yeah, yeah. but I am getting older. So I'm yeah. going to say it anyways. I feel like the difference between when I was younger and school, that kind of like reckless abandon of creativity and trying to let's just push the boundaries and all right. that. Right. That was really, you know, mission one, really, it you know, did, it was totally. just getting into it. And I feel like, you know, that had its ups and downs that has sure. its plus and minuses, you know, sure. it's kind of like trudging into the night, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it, but nowadays I feel like students are much more, I mean, of course, they're much more savvy to everything. There's more information. And I feel like a lot of them have this feeling of like, okay, well, what's the job? Yeah. Like, what am I getting out of this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. which in, in reality, you are getting an education and I, I can see that. But as far as like becoming a, you know, a strong artist and really like diving deep into creativity, yeah. sometimes you got to put that aside and just like, you know, jump in the pool. But I don't know. I, I think they're less, they're a little more uh, hesitant to, to jump into that pool. You know? Yeah, no, I, I think I've noticed a difference. Um, and I think um, the sort of root of it, um, at least, and I'm not an expert, but just from what I can see, I think is, um, you know, the sort of lack of diversity in the economy in general and how they're so, the margins for, success and victory and failure are so slim now um we were probably one of the last groups of students who you could go to mfa program you could still have some student loans and you could still not have a plan and sort of go to a bigger city and and sort of have enough time to kind of figure some things out um um, and even when, when we were graduating in the late 90s, it was getting to be a tightrope walk between your student loans and, and the realities of trying to be an artist and, and how am I going to make a living. And, um, but now I just think um, it is so difficult to um, just take, take a sort of um, uh, just take a job you know, in order to, to, to feed yourself and to, um, you know, to, to survive. Um, and as a way to allow yourself to make art, it's so hard to find any of those jobs that give you semblance of a, of a living wage. 
yeah. um, and give you enough time to, to make your art. So I think the environment is such where, you know, students and people and families and parents are all sort of like, okay, well, what is this actually going to give me when I get out of here? Or what's it going to give my child when they get out of here? And, and I want a, a plan as to, <laughs> you know, how they're going to make this money back and how they're going to pay off their loans and um, what kind of, you know, decent job are they going to go into? And again, I think um, we just, I mean, that it was, it was, to me, it was there um, when I was graduating from, from MFA program, but um, it was almost like the reality of it hadn't really caught up with our generation. I think the reality of it is so known now. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it affects how, um, you know, how younger, younger students approach making art. Um, you know, there's some really severe limitations on, uh, on what they can do. And, and um, so, but yeah, you try to, I think to the best of your ability as an instructor, you try to, um, you try to get them to at least practice flexing that muscle um, of resilience and um, sort of self-education in a way because um, you're right for good or for bad I think there's a lot of stuff that we were um, you know we had to figure out on our own so yeah definitely and it are um, if you think about the sort of movement through time in relation to you know our generation and like when we were at school, when we were, the internet was just starting. Oh yeah. To like, to come to it, that like, as you're saying, just as we graduated and started to assimilate into like the world world, you know, right, like the right. post-school world. Right. Um, it's interesting that that's just when information was starting to move around more and, you know, yeah. you could get other kinds of information and, right. you know, so we were almost like beautifully like ignorant to that stuff, <laughs> you know, cause, so, you yeah. kind of not need to. I remember my last. <laughs> this is funny. My last uh, studio visit before I graduated. Yeah. And it was with Mel Bachner yeah. who came yeah. in, and he sat down, and he was always really, you know, positive and kind of like supportive to me. Sure. Whereas I didn't. There was a lot of faculty who didn't really weren't interested in what I was doing, but he right. always kind of like was into it, probably because I wrote numbers down a lot in my yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he, he came in and he was like, "So, so, what are you going to do, Brian? What do you, what's the plan?" Yeah. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to move to New York. And he's like, well, it's not, it's not easy. Yeah. And yeah. I, I said, okay. And he's like, <laughs> you know, it was, that was pretty much yeah. it. It was just like, it's, it's not easy. That was yeah. the only kind of like real world education that I got yeah. in all my time in school. <laughs> sure. No. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think it, it, it says a lot coming from, uh, from Mel, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think we had no idea. You know, I, I sort of knew I wasn't ready to go down to New York, and I had a slightly different different path. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, um, how's it going to work out, you know? And, you know, for me, I had loans from undergrad and then loans from graduate school. And, um, yeah, it was... There was some, <laughs> there was some, there was some figuring out to do. Yeah, that dark cloud that just floats over the head, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, well, let's go back to to growing up. I mean, you, I know, at least from, 
you know, from the work that you were doing when we were in school together, like I know you have a deep interest in music, but like how yeah. did how did that start? Like when you were a kid, was music a big thing for you? Yeah, you know, um my uh my um mom is Jamaican uh and my dad is from uh grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut and um you know, my dad's father uh who um you know that his that that family sort of broke up the um my grandfather who I never met um sort of wasn't around um he was he was a jazz musician he was an alto sax um uh player and played in New York and uh Long Island and Connecticut and just sort of in the northeast and um I'm not I'm not even sure if he recorded on any albums but he he was just a player uh one of the many players on the scene um I would probably say in the uh, in the uh, late '30s and '40s, I would probably say definitely in the '40s. Um, so he's doing swing stuff. Yeah, you know the pictures that I've seen of him. Um, some of the sometimes he was in um, in the orchestra in the big band. There's a yeah. couple of, uh, old photographs of him doing that. But he also played. Uh, I know at least sort of near. Um, near the end of his life, and he sort of died early in a traffic accident, but he was playing with, um, I think, a couple, um, and the woman played piano, and I forget what the other guy played, but um, to make a long story short, there was, there was a lot of music um, on my dad's side of the family. Um, he had a, an aunt who uh, was a really great pianist, um, uh, and just, you know, um, people who played music and, um, and so I grew up with some of these stories about these people and my dad had an interest in jazz. Um, you know, he wasn't like a, uh, I'd say like a serious like jazz head, but what I, um, inherited from him really was a, uh, maybe a collection of albums that was you know, maybe, maybe 150 albums and there's a, a wide variety of things. Um, but there's a, a lot of jazz. Um, and he was just sort of kind enough and sort of low key enough to, to sort of just let me go through the albums. And, you know, I'm sure I scratched a bunch of them up and, <laughs> and all that stuff, but, um, there was a lot of Horace Silver. Um, yeah. there's a lot of John Coltrane. There are some Miles Davis. Um, there was uh I'm blanking on a few names now um there's a there's a fair amount of um uh Cuban jazz latin jazz uh Tito Puente uh Johnny and Willie Cologne mm-hmm. um uh so i grew up listening to a lot of those those sort of albums um and um and my mom just uh you know she she had really diverse musical interests, but I, I think what I can say is they both um, they both liked dancing. Um, they both liked listening to music, um, and uh, you know, music was was in the house. It wasn't like it wasn't like um, full on someone playing an instrument in the house or someone like totally. Uh, playing their music, but um, it was just in the house, and it was sort of this um, 
it was this sort of, um, it was a place where I could go, you know, I think, yeah. um, you know, for me drawing early on and, and listening to music and sort of getting an orientation towards music was, was a part of my early life. So, yeah. Was the drawing just the kind of like, you know, drawing kids do, so yeah. like, you know, all yeah. kids just get started like drawing stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean a lot. So my dad has one, he's one of those type of people who can sort of copy photographs just sort of freehand. Yeah. And uh, I was always amazed that he could do that. Um, and I watched him do it um, over the summers when I was, when I was, you know, probably up until I was uh, seven, eight, nine. Um, I remember uh, a handful of summers where he'd have a project that he'd put on the dining room table and he'd work on it all summer, um, you know, blowing up a photograph on an uh, on illustration board to, um, you know, two by three feet or something like that. Yeah. And I always wanted him to draw me things. And then, you know, he was just like, you should try, you know, you should try yourself and see, see what happens. And, you know, he worked a bunch of jobs. So, um, you know, some of that stuff was lost on me at the time, but he didn't have a whole lot of time. Um, so I started sort of drawing and I, I, I sort of realized that I could sort of do the same thing. I had that inherited that same sort of, um, natural, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I copied a lot of comic books, um, yeah. freehand and, um, and then began to copy some photographs and, uh, and, you know, that was sort of, um, yeah, I took a couple art classes in high school, but, um, you know, they, they were sort of, you know, they, they weren't the robust sort of AP classes that you see students having now. Right. But so when I got to college and I um, figured out that I, I wanted to to pursue making art, um, you know, there was a whole kind of introduction to perceptual drawing and abstraction um, that, you know, was really interesting and surprising to me because, um, you know, because I had only, you know, for so long I'd on my own only, uh, you know, really copied things by eye. Um, you know, two D to two D. So, was that like a new door that opened in a way? Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, it's a different kind of muscle uh, yeah. to sort of um, look at an object um, in space and then translate it into into two dimensional space. Um, and it took it took a while for me to sort of um, orient myself to that. And then even too, I think. Um, just the idea of abstraction. And, you know, I remember being introduced to um, Matisse uh, and just in uh, some of his charcoal drawings and some of his ink drawings and just really, um, as a freshman in college, just sort of not, like, getting why <laughs> why this was so good. And then, you know, um, at some point um, within a year or two, you you, you start to you start to understand a little bit more um, how complicated the whole thing is, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, all that stuff was new, was a new door to me and really, really exciting and um, really sort of freeing in a way that there could be so many, so many different outcomes, um, you know, to, uh, uh, to a response, um, you know, to making work. So, 
Well, and it's the exact opposite of the, the I'm going to make this look exactly like that. You know, yeah. sort of like pride and of accomplishment whenever you can make. And of course, when you're younger, yeah. the, the person, I wasn't that person my friend was, the person yeah. who could draw the record cover that looked just like the Metallica record yeah. cover or something. Yeah, yeah. Championed, you know, it was like, yeah. oh, you can do that. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Abstraction is the exact opposite of that. It's oh, to- totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're, you're totally right. Um, when did that hit, though? So, I mean, in high school, were you thinking... You know, like, well, obviously in your family, you had people who were creative individuals with music and, you know, I mean, when did it become something that you thought like, oh, this is something that I could get into or really lose myself? You know, really freshman, freshman fall, I came up to Dartmouth College from Richmond, Virginia, and, um, you know, I felt a little out of place, um, Luckily, I, I sort of began to, to, to make some friends pretty early on. But um, the one thing that I noticed the sort of first week, um, the orientation week before classes started, that a lot of the um, the other freshmen who are, I was talking to were even thinking about majoring already and thinking about the classes they were going to take. And a lot of them were, were expressing interest in taking classes um, at least some classes and things that they were already sort of good at or comfortable doing. And um, I thought I was going to sort of sl- slog my way through an engineering degree because um, it was it was an interest of mine in high school. Um, and then freshman fall, I just said, well, let me see if I can get into a drawing class because um, it seems like that's what some of the other people are doing. They're they're if they feel comfortable with writing in English, then they're sort of orient, orienting themselves that way. And, and I knew, I knew I had an interest in, in drawing. Um, so I, you know, I, luckily I got into a drawing class, um, my freshman fall and just being in this open studio with, you know, 15 other, 14 other students and one professor and, um, just the way you were learning and, um, the fact that there there weren't like hard and fast rules, it just felt so real and so good. And I and I sort of left that that first um, that first class thinking like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like I feel natural and I feel intuitive in this environment. Um, and so then I took another class. Um, and then I said, okay, maybe I'll, I'll study architecture instead of engineering. <laughs> and then by inched, the time I inched closer, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then by the time I, I had to declare my major, um, my sophomore winter, um, I just, I knew I was going to be, I knew I was going to be an artist and, you know, told my parents I would just take responsibility for it. And this is sort of <laughs> what I, I need to do. And, yeah. uh, were they cool with it? Uh, yeah, they were cool. I mean, they were they were they've always been supportive and um you know, my mom really encouraged me to to uh you know, to maybe double major in something, so I I took a lot of a lot of American history classes as well. Um didn't double major, but um I think I had one class. There's one class I was missing that I needed for the major um that I didn't take. So I I essentially had enough classes for a major, but didn't, 
didn't major in it. But that was great because I learned I learned a lot about writing and, and had some good instructors who really, um, uh, you know, really pushed me to become a better writer. So, um, so I feel like I, that's, that's what I really got out of my undergrad was um, figuring out I wanted to be an artist and, and sort of studying with some really interesting and amazing um, and nurturing uh, instructors. And then also too, I think, um, you know, really getting, um, really getting pushed into sort of a rigorous kind of um, relationship with writing. So, uh, and I'm not sure if I would have, would have forced myself into that. Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure if I would have um, gravitated towards that, uh, you know, if, um, if I hadn't been encouraged to, to do it. So, um, so it's, it's great. It's great now. So. Yeah, that's a good skill to have in the toolbox. And I feel like with art, you know, so much of it is about not defining and being sort of, you know, in that gray area, oh the opposite god. of writing. So oh my god, yeah. A lot of artists have such a hard time like pinning things down into text, you know, and Yeah. Um and that was me I I felt like I was terrible at writing for so long, you know. It's such a hard thing to do. It's yeah, I mean, I'm still you know, my wife's actually um, a, a really accomplished, a really amazing writer. And, and um, you know, it's sort of, you know, I can't hold a torch to what she does. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, um, our ideas, I mean, I, I think I think there's a the quote um, from Philip Dustin where someone was asking him about the change in his work and, and to paraphrase, I think he said something like, um, you know, I, I change and the work changes and, um, you know, uh, I always, at some point I always really thought about how true that is, like how it's so hard to pin down in writing what, what you think you're thinking about because so often it changes like in the next draft or the yeah. next day or the next minute, it's like you could totally argue the opposite point. Um, and um, yeah, I think, <laughs> I, I think the writing part is a, uh, is a, is a tough one. Yeah. I suppose poetry would be a little closer because it's almost like more like vignettes or snapshots, kind of like paintings are, you know, yeah. like when yeah. you have a show, it's the, the images are combined for this overall kind of idea or whatever but it's it's always the in between you like the gray area in between paintings or sculptures or whatever it is that yeah that kind of fills out the work but the yeah. irony is there's nothing there like it's filled out <laughs> by nothing totally but totally. in a story i mean i guess you have that to some extent but it's a little more i think literal you know it's yeah a, you're, yeah yeah you're sort of expressing those and laying it down yeah. I, I kind of love that gray area in between because I think that's and and that's why artist statements become so. It's like a landmine, you know, to like oh. to try to nail it down to this idea. I always, oh. you know, sometimes people do it for you. They'll oh, sort yeah. of write about the work, yeah. and some yeah. people are beautifully uh, talented at it's sort of getting to the ideas in this poetic way that adds something to it. Right. But then you'll get the blurbs that are like the one paragraph that yeah. sum up your work. And you're like, man, really? Is that what it's I, about? <laughs> I know, man. I know. I know. I, and I, I think you have to, at least for me, you know, um, you just have to get, get at peace with, um, 
the fact that there's going to be a lot lost in translation, you know, totally. and, um, it's, you know, it's either annoying or frustrating or cringeworthy sometimes when you read certain things, but, um, even things that you've written yourself, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, language is not uh, sort of written language. Isn't the best, the best way to, to try to, to get around, uh, these visual ideas. No, no. I mean, a, a parallel to what's happening now too is like this idea of summing things up in like, you know, two minute news segments or like yeah. twenty second clips or like tweets that are like whatever two hundred forty characters or something. Like trying to everything now it has to be so distilled down to this quick yeah. encapsulation of things that yeah. it, it really um, confuses communication. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, I think um, you know, there's the reality of of sort of efficiency and communication, and and especially I think um, in the contemporary age. But you know, a lot of the things that we're trying to, to to communicate, and you know, you know, for example, all the stuff that's that's happening nationally right now. I mean, all the layers of things that are happening. Um, you know, uh, these these issues about race. Um, and gender and, and, uh, you know, the environment, all, all of these issues are so complicated and they're so nuanced that, you know, um, we tend to be in these conversations that are, that are sort of either or, um, and, um, and they're just, they're really new, they're really complicated, nuanced problems. Um, and yeah, so sometimes the medium, um, yeah, the medium sort of forces us, the various mediums sort of force us uh, into sort of either choosing a side or, um, you know, not being able to get into that nuanced kind of um, explanation or, or uh, yeah. yeah. Well, the irony of that, too, is that in using that kind of like thesis encapsulation of an idea or or of trying to sum something up like that to where it becomes like this binary either it mm-hmm. is or it isn't or whatever it is is feeding into the same kind of like misinterpretation of people or yeah. you know ideas of of culture race or or whatever it is you yeah. know of you know that that's the problem when you try to sum everything up quickly and say yeah. well these people are like this or this work right. is like this you know right yeah, yeah. painting painting's dead or yeah. you know whatever yeah. it is you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? yeah. but people love to do that and i guess in a way you know that that becomes part of the conversation or it becomes like a stimulus for conversation oh yeah but it can also become really problematic when it becomes like you know dogma or just you know something that people believe in oh yeah 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 i mean i think it's you know on one hand it's amazing that um again i was just talking to my wife about this um over the past couple of days but it's it's amazing that um, you get such a more nuanced um, picture of what's going on, let's just say in particular in relation to the protests that are happening. You get such a wider understanding from looking at Twitter or people's posts on Instagram as opposed to CBS or CNN um, and you know, those larger sort of networks, obviously they, they have to vet a lot of the things that they're, they're going to put up before they put them up. But, um, you know, one of the great things about all this short form communication is you just get such 
a wider, unfiltered, uncurated sense of what what people are seeing. Um, and I think it's really important, you know. Um, I think it's one of the aspects of the, um, you know, these new communication forms that's, uh, you know, that's great. And, and um, you know, they have their downsides as well. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to see all these, these, uh, these video clips. Yeah, and I think that, you know, th- this idea that, you know, this stuff's always been happening. And, you know, there, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, why is it different this time? Or like, you know. Mm-hmm. And this kind of thing is like an endless cycle of repeating. I thought Obama had a really interesting, you know, comment about how different now he said these protests are as opposed to what was happening in the '60s because of the diversity of the people involved and yeah. the dynamic of that diversity within a protest is totally yeah. different. That wouldn't have happened in the '60s. Yeah, and I think you know that stuff might a lot of that stuff you know, just wasn't seen before. And and the same thing with, you know, with all these voices and all these videos and stuff. Well, now it's like everyone sees everything pretty much, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's down from like, you know, brutality to, you know, someone throwing a rock through a window or right. someone like running someone. I mean, it's all there to see. Yeah. yeah. And that's hard to yeah. see. <laughs> you know I what know. I mean? It's hard. Yeah. And like when, like, especially as a parent, you know what I mean? Like some of the stuff that's visible out there, you're just like, God damn, like you do. You know no, what I mean? You, you no. just don't want that to be out there, really, but it's out there. So, no, yeah. You, yeah. you got to face it. Yeah. Really. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's there. Um, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely out there. So, well, uh, I don't know what kind of transition or parallel <laughs> this is, <laughs> but, uh, I remember in, in school, you know, you were making work that was abstract. Yeah. You know, but I believe you were influenced by sort of music. Um, like the sort of lineage of notes and, and you know, structural of music or sounds and structure of music. Yeah. Um, your work now is not quite no. the same. So. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's been a, um, a big evolution and, uh, you know, the work is all, it, for me, it's always sort of, it's always evolving. Um, and the work I was doing in school in graduate school, um, was in a way um, uh, a response to people like um, Kandinsky and Mondrian because for me um, the timing of music was and the immediacy of music was something that I intuitively felt a stronger connection to than the indirectness of at least of painting, and even though I know you can you can paint in a really direct way, um, for the longest time I think um, I was in a process of trying to get my mind to understand the timing of painting. You know, sort of the sequence of um, various operations that would yield. A visual effect or um just trying to just trying to understand sort of what the timing the timing of painting is or at least my kind of painting um you know compared to my own timing so early on i think um i gravitated towards abstraction because it felt more immediate 
um, and as an undergrad, it's more sort of gestural abstraction. But uh, you know, the more I learned the end of undergrad, and then certainly um, into graduate school, the more I, I understood and learned about Mondrian. Um, the more the more I saw that as a path forward. I think also because of the um, not only his sort of interest in, in music, and even if that sort of came a little later on, but I think um, the visual um, sort of analogs between um, some non-Western kinds of expressions, um, whether it's um, uh, West African uh, textiles um, or um, uh, ceramic work from the Middle East, um, there are ways that I began to see Mondrian both as high modern modernist painting and and really highly European Eurocentric painting, but also too um, there's this strange um, connection to all of this non-Western kind of expression, um, and so I, I really. Um, saw saw sort of him and sort of saw that way of painting as an umbrella way for me to sort of combine all of my interests. Um, and, you know, my sort of take on it was instead of, um, and it took a while for these ideas to sort of coalesce, I actually sort of worked on them on and off from the first semester of graduate school all the way until um, three or four years outside of graduate school, I was um, sort of returning to these ideas. But really, instead of having the paintings be sort of interpretations, um, sort of subjective kinds of interpretations uh, of the music, or having the music sort of come subordinate to the painting, I wanted to sort of dive right into the structure, into the sheet music, and start to um, sort of analyze the, the sheet music as basically some sort of variation of the grid. The staff is a variation of the grid, and then the placement of the notes um, as a way to navigate that grid and, and to make the grid unstable. Um, so um, in a way, there, there was a way that I could think about the work in a rigorous way. There was a way that I could um, think about the work in a conceptual way. Um, there was a way that uh, I also could sort of um, almost have the work function a little bit like observational painting, where you, you're sort of looking at, you can sort of refer to something, but instead of referring to an object, I was referring to the staff um, of the sheet music or, you know, referring to my sort of... Um, interpretations, gridded interpretations of that staff. Um, and, you know, um, the work went in and out of phase between um, that sort of underpinning of the grid being overwhelmed by the mark making. Um, and so the grid sort of really um, disappearing. Uh, and then um, you know, some of the work where uh, I just, I stayed really within the lines uh, and the grid was really apparent. Um, 
and that you know the, that sort of relationship to from the painting to the sheet music um, was really key to me. That happened sort of first semester, and it really is a kernel um, for how I sort of found a way into um, into really thinking about again the timing of painting. Um, so uh, that work. Um, developed into uh, sort of monochromatic um, panel paintings um, that sometimes they were joined, sometimes they were shaped. Um, they were predominantly white overlay paintings that had uh, really brightly colored underpaintings underneath. And I think they, they certainly were in a conversation with Robert Ryman, though. Um, you know, um, uh, you know, a bit up to some different things, but but um, Ryman was someone who I certainly thought of and knew he was he was making these paintings. Um, but eventually, what began to happen was I I began to understand that um, I couldn't really make paintings that only existed inside of painting so um and it just took years and years of um making sort of those works and sort of the works that i was sort of showing um uh in, in bits and spurts uh and then i was making observational paintings from the landscape and observational drawings and um you know i was doing a whole lot of different things um some of some some of which were shown. Some of the things you know will never be shown. Um, but um, I began to realize that uh, for me, the painting ha has to have um, an emotional connection to something in the world, um, and whether that's um, the birth of children and. Um, trying to come to terms with trying to communicate with a with a, a baby or a young child and sort of the way that um, moving into parenthood sort of erodes your ego yeah. <laughs> in in some respects I mean there's a whole group of work that I did that was really based on on that um, um, being with my first child Alex and sort of the realization that I, you know, I can't be in my studio making this really esoteric work and then compartmentalize that and then come home and it's like full-on domestic life. And so there's a natural shift in the work that moved towards him. Like, um, I need my paintings to be able to, to make sense in relation to his voice and not in relation to necessarily... Um, you know, an art historical voice or a, you know, a theoretical voice. So um, all of these sort of tensions really came out of that, that sort of earlier work dealing with music and really, um, you know, professors really sort of pushing me in grad school um, to sort of, you know, put your cards on the table and sort of, 
you know, what are you interested in? And, um, you know, for me, it's like, yeah, music, you know, is, is what is where I feel, um, really free and really, you know, there's a kind of levitation. Um, uh, and from that, I, you know, um, over the years, uh, just the, 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 the multitude of ways you can paint, um, and trying to hold on to some sort of connection to, um, quote unquote, traditional painting or, um, sort of conventional painting and, um, whether it's, it's, uh, you know, European or American or what have you, um, you know, that sort of shaped my work. Um, and it, and it sort of, it's why and where I am now, I think in the work. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that, if that answered sort of, no, totally. And yeah, it, I feel like um, having a kid does change a lot, doesn't it? Like oh, the, yeah. Your, your entire world becomes less abstract in a way. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and it's not about you anymore, necessarily. Like it all goes to like, okay, now this person is my world, you know? Yeah. That sounds really kind of like not cool to your your significant other in a sense uh, like right. like whenever i say that it sounds like i don't like my my wife wasn't that person she is but you know what i mean there's yeah. something happens when you have a kid that i think it's the worry and the sort of like parental like that need to care yeah. that yeah. you care so much about keeping this little person alive and and you know and taking care of it that you don't care so much about yourself or you know like or the art world or whatever it is like it it recalibrates something it, in the brain no totally yeah i think i think it's um you know i think obviously if you want to have kids you should um um if you have an inkling that you want to have kids you, sh- you should but you know who cares if you have kids or not you know my experience is that my wife and i wanted to have um children and we, we have two kids and um you know she's a really amazing partner and amazing mother to, to to um to our children um and i think we both went through just this transition between yeah it's not all about yourself and and um you know we had a lot of time together before we had kids um so that that was great but um you know my wife is dedicated to those kids and um i am i'm dedicated uh to my kids and dedicated to not um to to to, to being to being around and being there um yeah. uh so you know and that's just there's there's no judgment i think that's just how we are and i think there's a million ways to raise your children and a million ways successful ways to do that and and um you know we could have a whole conversation about that but um yeah they really both of them really um impacted um how i how i thought about myself and sort of how i thought about my relationship to um 
my work and, you know, all the sort of career things that we, we all sort of enmeshed um, in to greater or lesser degrees. Um, yeah, there's this thing, this child that, 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 you know, you facilitated being in the world and, and they need you. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, um, what year, so you went, but you did the Rome thing, right? You were in Rome? Yeah, yeah. What we year were, was that? That was 2016, um, 2016, and um, Alex was, was he five, six? He was, uh, no, he was seven, I think, um, when we were there. And, uh yeah, Etienne, my daughter was was about three. Wow, um, that was. <laughs> yeah, that it, that was a whole. <laughs> <laughs> I know people have gone when their kids have gone to college. You know, they they've left the nest, so to speak, yeah. and they say, "Oh, it was great to go to Rome because to do that because you can really just lose yourself or whatever." But having two kids at that age, was that, how was that experience? It was intense. I mean, yeah. it was. Yeah, we homeschooled them. Um, because they didn't quite gel with, um, uh, you know, going to going to school um, in Rome. You know, there we live in relatively rural Vermont, and so the, the combination of both being in a foreign country and being in an urban environment, yeah, it was a double sort of adjustment for them. But you know, again, my wife just um, I took them in the morning. Um, from like nine to 12, I think, if I remember correctly. And then um, my wife had them in the afternoon, basically from noon until, um, it just depended, you know, six or seven. And there's, there's weird things with the dinners where I had to go to the dinners. Um, but um, yeah, we, we, it was intense. Um, we were really regimented. We had yeah. a you know pretty tight schedule, and um, I had enough time to paint. Um, you know, again, my wife sacrificed a lot, uh, um, and her ability to organize, I think, allowed us actually to get through it. But um, I had sort of the afternoons to paint, which was plenty of time, um, and then I would take them into the. Um, you know, we'd walk in the city um uh and uh you know go to playgrounds go to parks also go to churches and cathedrals and um you know we would just we would just try to be troopers and, and just walk as much places as we could and then when the weather got a little colder or we wanted something else to do um they would come to my studio and we would we would work on projects in there um foam core bridge projects or just, you know, just sort of, um, uh, painting and drawing projects. And, uh, we did exercise, you know, we just did all kinds of things. Um, yeah. but, uh, it was a totally amazing experience. I think it was great for us. We got really tight, um, um, you know, more tight than we already were as a family, but, yeah. um, how about your work? Yeah. I mean, um, it changed a little bit in the sense that, um, you know, the, the work leading up to Rome, uh, like the work from 2015 in 
to 16 was a lot about the stuff that's happening now, just the sort of issues of, uh, you know, racial injustice, really specifically through policing. Um, And I was really working on paintings that were a real emotional response to the Eric Gardner uh, situation. And I remember being in my studio painting and just looking and assessing what I was working on and, and sort of hearing, I think it was 2014. There was a bunch of, um, a bunch of police videos that came out and, uh, I just was like, I can't, I can't be in the studio, like painting, painting what I'm painting and all this stuff is happening. And so to make a long story short, there was a shift in the work in 2014 and the first drawing started coming out in late 14, 15, and then painting started coming. And then all of those were what I was working on when I went to Rome. And a lot of them were thinking about, um, um, Italian painting and thinking about religious painting and thinking about, um, you know, Philip Gustin, um, and, uh, just trying to really piece together that whole thing for me. I, again, I saw a window in Gustin, both in terms of his approach to painting, but also I think a way in which he found, he found a way to be engaged, um, to be engaged, you know, and still yeah. make his work. And so that was a really important model for me. And then to be over in Rome, you know, you're just seeing a lot of these, his references firsthand. Um, and you're also seeing a lot of the paintings sort of in cultural context um, or architectural context. Um, and in Rome, I think it was the first time I actually started to refer to photographs. There were a few a few passages that were pretty hard for me to paint and I couldn't imagine, couldn't sort of figure them out with my imagination. And um, as silly as it sounds, you know, I was really trying just my darndest not to, not to use photographs. And then at some point it clicked. It was just like, it's sort of stupid. Just, just use them and, and, you know, use them to make what you're trying to say. And so, um, there started to be a couple of paintings in Rome where um, I think the forms start to get a little bit more, um, just a little bit more robust. Uh, And um, there are a few motifs that began to come up. I think a fence form um, started to come up in the work. And uh, what else? a few of these sort of winged angel forms that are sort of these witness forms began to come up in the work. Um, and the color changed a bit. Um, so it was, it was really productive. I mean, there was, I got a lot done there. Um, a lot of drawing done and a lot of painting done. Um, and, um, yeah, it was pretty, I mean, the whole experience was, was difficult at times, but, uh, but really pretty amazing. Yeah. And is your work sort of stayed in that dialogue since then? You know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's shifted a bit. I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a, 
overall conversation about depictions of violence and is that helping or hurting or you know there's a whole aesthetic conversation about that and i try not to pay too much attention to it um the works i was doing before rome and during rome um definitely were focusing on the violence um they were focused on not making um not identifying the perpetrators of the violence explicitly. So there are little clues that, um, you know, maybe this is about pr- police brutality because you see a billy club and you sort of know what that is. Yeah. But um, there's a lot of ways that um, I was trying to mask and screen and hide sort of um, the identities uh, and sort of let the viewer put that information together in due time. Um, but the work has sort of shifted, it's expanded out a bit, um, where, um, if you begin to think about, if I begin to reframe the work that I was doing right before Rome and in Rome as, um, thinking about the different kinds of gazes that are um, viewing the scenes that I'm painting. Um, Some of the um, cartoon-like quality and monstrous kinds of qualities of some of the the figures and um, whose gaze is that, you know, um, the idea that you sort of have to see these people, um, these people of color, you sort of have to see them somehow is non-human or monstrous or somehow strip away their humanity however you want to say it in order to perpetrate this kind of of uh action on them right so there's a way that once i began to conceptualize the work as sort of okay these are sort of um about the um or these are also about the sort of distorting gaze um of, um, you know, uh, uh, of a person who, who, who doesn't see these people as human, then, then if I reframed the paintings in that way, I could start to think about, okay, what happens when, what happens when you, you view people of color just as normal, like just as normal people, um, and what happens when, um, especially sort of now, when you see them celebrating or you see them, um, uh, you know, dressed very well, like when you see them in sort of um, situations or with attributes that um, symbolically um, uh, uh, show some sort of sort of success or, or um, uh I don't want to say humanity, but when you take them out of that um, overtly sort of view of, of as victim. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the gaze I think now in the work is trying to be more diverse. And I think um, the work is still about sort of injustice, 
um, I think there's a lot more diverse images and kinds of images that, that sort of always aren't dealing with a kind of um, violence or, or inferring a kind of violence. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe the works are a little more open-ended. Um, they're certainly becoming, um, I think, more realistic. I think yeah. I'm, I'm relying on, on photographs more, both my own photographs and ones that I find. Um, and I think for me, there's a way that I'm just trying to um, shed um, as I become conscious of sort of uh, affectations in my own work. I think I'm trying to shed those uh, and just let them be, just let, let the images be what they are, you know, and, you know, a lot of us are aware of this um, this battle between sort of content and form, or what you're painting and how you paint it, um, and all of those complicated conversations. And I think there was a way that when I was younger. Um, and it's, it's still with me. There's a way that, and it's with me because of my schooling that I'm really conscious of sort of how things are painted and, um, what are the kinds of ways that you paint an image that signal to an audience that you understand what the conventions of painting are and you understand what all that subtext is and all that history is. Um, there's part of me that really understands that and is concerned with that. And there's part of me that rebels against it. There's part of me that sort of is like, you know, um, I guess the simplest way to put it is like, you know, I, I, the work is so much now about trying to communicate these issues that I'm concerned about and I'm enmeshed in. Um, uh, and I want the images to be legible to, to people, you know, um, what good are the, the images going to do if, you know, you need a PhD to decode them or, you, you know, or to, to read, to read them. So I, increasingly, I think, um, I'm making these, these sacrifices where, um, I'm just trying to paint out just paint sort of directly, even if it's, even if they're, they're moving into kitsch or even if they're moving into, um, uh, just stuff that I wouldn't have done before because it was just off limits. It wasn't kosher. It's like, um, you know, those boundaries between, um, high art and low art are, um, you know, are really sort of evaporating. And again, maybe you go back to Gustin and you think about, that switch in his work. And even though, you know, we can see those figurative paintings of his as high art, um, it was so obvious that in so many quarters, they were viewed as low art um, or teetering on low art when they came out. And um, it's scary for me in a way um, uh, to be working 
and having the work evolve and change as I'm understanding more about myself and, and sort of where I want the work to be um, in terms of being useful and sort of in a conversation and then also, you know, wrestling with it being aesthetically sound. But um, yeah, the work uh, is just, um, it's, you know, it's just, I, I, when we started the conversation talking about words and how they fail us and yeah, I think um, there's just a lot I'm trying to get at and um, but I, I need the work to be legible by a lot of people, you know. Yeah, it's um, like a, it's finding that balance, right, of all those different, because painting has so many different reference points, you know. Oh, yeah. Just like music, because yeah. like when you were talking about those early, you know, um, paintings based on abstractions, based on, you know, the staff and like the yeah. notes and all that, I was thinking about melody yeah. and color. And I was like, yeah. well, how does color come into play to that? Is it sort of a uh, reaction to the expressive melody or the, the intensity or the warm and cool tone? You know, like my mm -hmm. mind started going into that area. And that's a whole other oh, totally. like, level. And, totally. um, and thinking about music, too, and, and this idea of balancing, you know, your, your acknowledgement of proficiency or the, the, the craft or the medium and at the same time pushing away from that and there's something to be said for that too you know I, I remember at that same time when we were in school I first saw Space as a Place you know and I was yeah, yeah, infatuated yeah. <laughs> with Sun Ra you know I was, it yeah. was just this it blew my mind I was like well, oh, what yeah. is this you know yeah. and then in studying about him and his his you know past and he's this really accomplished technically proficient pianist but exactly you know he had this this desire to sort of you know create his own land and to escape all the stuff that was going on you know yeah. it's kind of i mean is that that's the the kind of the equation you know is like the balance i mean i guess everyone as an artist is doing that too it's like balancing oh, yeah. you know what they want to say and how they say it and then the medium of the avenue that they're taking like the vehicle they're using to get that out there yeah and it's such a like the the failing of words it's such a sort of nebulous and fuzzy and there's no edges, you know, that's all yeah, yeah. kind of bleeds together. And I guess that's the value of it is that it can't be necessarily, you know, prescriptive completely, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways that I'm cropping images and sort of leaving those gray spaces and leaving these narratives sort of open-ended or opaque. And I was sitting in the studio yesterday and just, um, thinking about um, sort of for as sort of sort of clear and sort of figurative as some of the work is becoming, um, they also for me it just dawned on me. Well, these are also sort of they retain the strange opacity of abstraction because of the way they're cropped and. Um, because of the ways um, that I'm choosing to paint paint the forms, um, you know, with the reliance on thinking about the surface and just sort of uh, painting very flatly and, and sort of, um, uh, in a way, sort of leaving, leaving the method for how they're painting more or less sort of open. Um, 
I think you're right. I think it's it's nothing new. It's something that everyone's doing. And I think for me in particular, I don't even know how to really describe it, but there's a way where you sort of know you don't really need art. And then as soon as you utter that, you know, like for that reason, like we really need art. You know, we really need art and we really need music as human beings. Yeah. You know, we just, we need it. And so I think baked into, into my relationship to making work is sort of, um, it's just that, like, I, I need to make work. I need to see work. Humans need to, to, to make work. They need to see work, but they also don't need to see, they don't need to see my paintings. You know, they, they don't need to, um, you know, um, my paintings are no, are, 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 are infinitely less important than, um, you know, than the people who are, who are out doing things in the street, protesting the street or the people, just any human being, you know, is worth more than any, any art object, <laughs> you know? So, um, there's a way that I approach the work, um, in that, in that, you know, uh, in that spirit as well. Um, yeah, but you know, to, to your point earlier that, you know, everything is complicated, <laughs> like nothing is sort of like, you know, I, I feel like we do, I mean, if you think about culture and what that does, and art is a huge part of culture, right? I mean, isn't art really culture? Isn't that what art, culture is, is art? You know, I saw this, you know, a little picture, a little square picture on Instagram or whatever, and it said, you know, love black people like you love black culture. You know, it was this idea, you know, everyone, you know, you like the music, you like the athletes, you like the art of the game, you like, you know, all the culture that comes out of the black community. And, you know, but if you think, well, we don't really need art, but where would we be without that? Where is the divisiveness? You know, what art and culture is that the abstraction that happens in it is, I think, what and allures people and brings people together because it's not defined necessarily, but people become interested in like, oh, I love the way that that sounds or like they're making that image or, or you know, somewhat something I don't understand necessarily, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious about it. Not everyone's curious. And I think that's a problem when people become, you know, not curious about other people and other culture. But I think culture is so important for sort of bringing people together you know it's a, it's imperative I, our planet would be you know I, i'm sure like you know thousands of years ago it was brutal on this earth with humans and how they you know people just kill people they didn't know and war and you know whatever and i think it's because people didn't understand other people's cultures and they didn't you know the fear of not knowing and i think you know, that's such a huge part of it. I say it all the time, you know, that the people who don't travel and aren't exposed to other people or other situations become fearful and they come sealed off and that's dangerous, you know? It's kind of like, you know, if you put a piece of food in the closet and you don't show it any light or introduce it to anything else, this is going to be rotten, you know? Yeah, yeah, no. No, I, I, I completely agree, you know, um, uh, you know, the importance of, of, of art and sort of art as, um, you know, an aspect of culture. Um, I think my only, my only, um, the way I frame things in my head though, uh, is just that, um, 
it just it like 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 just simply no no piece of art is is worth more than a human being totally. and so yeah. you know and so i can have these internal um struggles and conversations with my craft and with making art and just being a human being and and get really involved in that and i'm you know completely committed to that that's what my life is um uh you know making art um you know being a father and a husband and 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 um and and teaching and not necessarily in that in that order but um it's important for me to always um balance that sort of inherent sort of self-absorption and in, in making your your work uh you know with with the fact that um you know, okay, if I if I need to if I need to not do this, if I need to stop making art to go participate in in something out in the world, um, uh, then then I need to be prepared to do that, and that can be um, spending more time with your children. That can be um, teaching, teaching. Yeah, right. I mean, it can, it, it's it can be so many different things. Um, so that's that's my only that's where i've had to be um sort of mentally and emotionally that's the place where i've had to be you know just given uh you know given my trajectory and 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 my path um and i don't you know i don't do much besides make (laughs) besides being be in the studio when i'm when i'm not you know teaching or or um you know or being home um, I don't, there's not a lot of other stuff that I do. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. Well, it, and do you, I mean, this is a side note, but you've been living in Vermont for a while and you, you said you live in a kind of, are you in a rural area? Is it pretty? Well, yeah, I mean, not, we live, yeah, we, we live in the next town. Um, we live sort of right across the river from Dartmouth where I teach. Yeah. Uh, Dartmouth is in New Hampshire and, uh, you just live in the next town over. And, um, you know, there's a certain amount of, there's a hospital and the college is here, so there's a certain amount of, um, of uh, sort of diverse culture around the college. But, um, yeah, it gets, it's, it's relatively rural, um, you know, as you move away from, we'll say, southern New Hampshire, uh, which mm-hmm. is sort of near, near to Boston and all that stuff, and then also to... Um, sort of western Vermont up near Burlington, you get you know another sort of big town. Um, but it's yeah, it's uh, it's relatively rural. Yeah. Do you like the quiet? I mean, I assume it's pretty quiet. I mean, it I is. Guess, I think today, I, you know, if you ask artists who are living outside of like a major city, right? Yeah. Like five years ago, people were like, "Well, you know, it's hard. You got to be in a city, or it's it really helps to be around." Nowadays, you know, people are like a lot more people are like let's get out you know yeah it's, yeah you know the friends i have who live outside the city are like see this ain't bad out here you know like, yeah it's kind of nice yeah and i got a big studio and i'm still making my work so you yeah. know like do you feel pretty um relaxed I, in the situation or you know like i you know i do it, it's it's been really good i've been up here since 2001 and uh it was really good to have the open space and and sort of not have some of the the pressures of you know my wife and i were in philadelphia before we came up here and um 
Yeah, I mean, there were, there were ways that I could really move through some work at my own pace and sort of make changes at my own pace. And, um, uh, you know, there are always catalytic forces inside of cities that are extremely helpful. Um, uh, you know, that maybe you, you don't have in sort of a rural setting, but, um, I think there's a trade-off, you know, I think, um, it's been good for me. I mean, it's been really good for me. It's, I think now that, um, I am sort of where I am in my work now, I think, um, yeah, I mean, there's some, there's some inconveniences about not, not being sort of like right, right in the marketplace and sort of right where, um, most of the apparatuses, um, but it has gotten better, you know, um, uh, you know, with the robustness of the sort of digital platforms and things like that. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's funny because, um, in 2014, 15, the work sort of changed or shifted and the sort of, um, issues, the, the images of violence that were sort of circulating were really, for the most part, coming from urban centers in a way, I guess. Um, and so there's a question like, how do you, how does that square with where you live? And, and my point even back then was stuff happens up here too. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and, um, not only that, but also to um, and maybe getting back to your point about what Obama said about how the protests in the '60s are different than the protests now. I think what's going on now, it's like you just—it's everyone sees it. I mean, and so many people are are in the coalition, and um, you know they're other countries that are marching in solidarity with this stuff. So um, I feel like it's me being in a rural place. um, It sort of evolved into, into somewhat of a non-issue. Right. Um, uh, You know, there are pros and cons, you know, sometimes you wish you were in a city, Um, but I'm okay. Yeah. I'm really, really good with where I am. Are you, uh, Boy, this is uh, <laughs> the question. Uh, I mean, are you hopeful about the situation? You know what I mean about this change and this. Uh, yeah, that- I, I, I was talking to <laughs> my wife and I were talking uh, last night, um, was it probably the day before, and um, you know, I we're we're not that old, but we've 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 been along just enough where, you know, you sort of get a sense for how, um, issues are really important for a while. And then they just get absorbed back into oblivion. And so there's part of me that, um, knows that other issues are going to, going to pop up and, um, uh, 
you know, there are other things that are going to take our attention uh, as, as what is, is the way it naturally will be. Um, but, um, and we'll just see, you know, yeah. I, I, I think unfortunately sort of, or fortunately, um, starts to play out in, in the ballot box and starts to play out in, in, um, in politics and, and voting and. Boy, it takes uh, too long though, doesn't it? I mean, it, those changes it, are like painfully slow. I feel like. They, yeah, I mean they are, but I I also feel like um it's not until you get the structural issues at least sorted out um that we can then really focus on um on the other sort of softer things, you know, like education yeah. uh which is hugely important, but if you can back up um, these sort of structural changes with increased funding into um, into education, um, you know, and then other uh, social and institutional structural changes. Um, I think then then you you, in my humble opinion, then you have a real path forward because you have some accountability, you have some structure. Uh, and then you also have funding for for these sort of more um, uh, social projects. But uh, you know, I think um, humans are humans, and and you know, we've evolved over millions of years, and and um, you know, hopefully, I'm hopeful that that some some real change will will, will happen, but. Um, I also know it's really complicated, you know, yeah. and I also, you know, and also, I also know that it's going to take some time. Um, so, so yeah. Um, and I, I think there's a, there's also, at least for me, um, and I've, I've seen this and heard this on, on social media and, and uh, other sort of outlets about the sort of, if you want to sort of, if you want to talk about sort of black people as a monolith, um, which obviously is, is a dangerous thing to do, um, but a kind of weariness um, and fatigue with constantly having to bring up the same issue and constantly having to defend yourself and constantly having to sort of shake off the sort of branding that gets um, that gets put on you intentionally or unintentionally. Um, you know, so much energy goes into just getting back up to to to, um, to neutral territory. So, you know, I'm optimistic, but um, you know, if you just look a little bit backwards in time, you're like, man, we've been having the same conversation, <laughs> yeah, same 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 one for a while. So, um, so we'll see, we'll see. Yeah, I mean for all of the faults of technology and, you know, the trolling and all the negativity or whatever that you can be associated with, one hopes that, you know, it, it enables, um, a, this to not become something that's swept under the rug. You know what I mean? I feel like back, cause I remember, you know, during the Rodney King video, you know, that was big, you know, that, you know, there's these events in history that burn like a real, 
into your psyche. And I remember when that happened, it's like, you know, at that point, video was kind of like not nearly as pervasive, of course, as it is now. And, and none of that would have happened if that didn't get caught on tape. You know, now it's like, you know, it's harder to avoid, you know what I mean? Like stuff, th- this stuff that's been happening forever, you know what I mean? It's it's going to be harder and harder for people to to sweep it under the rug or for it to not be seen, you know, like there's, I mean, you, you see an event that happened like the one that just happened and then there's other camera angles. I mean, it's not just one person who gets lucky enough to see it or something, not lucky, but you know what I'm saying? That it's fortunate enough that that wasn't not seen. Do you know what I mean? But then it's like uh, multiple camera angles and, and, you know, I th- feel like the same thing with um, the me too movement. I think it's harder for men to be, you know, in the workplace and like, it's just, you know, these natural tendencies that people have, certain people have to, to do things that they can get away with. If that environment doesn't make it easy or it doesn't make it possible for people to get away with things, you know, that's, you know, cause certain people are just going to be a certain way. You know what I mean? You're not going to stop like thieves from stealing things or people from being violent in the world. But you sure as hell can try to like make it difficult for people who want to be violent to do that in society, you know, and, and, and I think that's incumbent on our society and technology and, and everyone to, to work together to try to like, you know, to squash that as much as it is humanly possible, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I, uh, I agree. It's definitely a group, a group effort. And, um, you know, there are multiple, multiple issues where we need to come together, um, and sort of get some stuff done. So, yeah, that, right. There's so many, yeah. and, and, it's sad that it's sad that it took a pandemic for people to be off the grid and not out shopping and being like, well, that sucks. I'm going to go do what I'm going to go do. And I feel like that's the reason really that this happened is because everyone was at home and, and paying attention because they weren't off just, you know, shopping or going to do what they normally do. And they had the time to be outright. It's like, come on, like, you know, it's sad that it took a pandemic, but, um, sometimes, you know, you need certain things. Like everyone was talking as soon as, you know, COVID hit, people were saying immediately like, well, hopefully this, you know, shines a light on like, people are going to start paying attention to the environment and that like, if we don't start taking care of things, we're all going to be gone here soon, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, we'll see. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my, my feeling is, is, uh, you know, the cards are all laid out. And so let's just see what we do. You yeah. know, let's see what we do. Well, I'm going to say in the meantime, it's totally fine to paint. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure. I, I second that. You know, on, yeah. on, on blackout Tuesday, you know, my, my friend texted me in the morning. He's like, listen, man, no art today. This this blackout Tuesday. And, and I, I thought to myself, yeah, I, you know, I, I get it. And then I was thinking, well, when is it cool for me to like, <laughs> to, <laughs> can I make something soon? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I feel like the create being creative and, and making things is so important. It, like you said, oh, yeah. it's, it's doesn't feed us. We don't need it, but it, we do need it. You know? Oh, we do need it. Yeah. I mean, we, it's, yeah, we do need it. And, um, you know, um, it's our, it's our nourishment. So totally. I imagine this, you know, Imagine a quarantine where you have no film, you have no music, you have right. no art. Right. I have to be grim. It would be very, <laughs> it would be very, a very bad situation. Yeah. Well, 
Listen, thanks so much. It was great to talk to you, man. Yeah, yeah, Brian, it's it's great. Thanks for uh, uh, asking me to talk, and uh, you know, um, it's good to see you. And uh, likewise, yeah, maybe yeah. when this blows over, I can take a trip up to Vermont and see the studio. Hey, I would love that. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast at soundandvisionpodcast.com. Thanks to all the listeners. If you would like to support the podcast, you can go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, or share it with a friend. Many thanks to Enrico for talking to me from his place in Vermont. Many thanks to Michael Lovett for the intro. Thanks to Fredericks and Golden for their support. Most of all, thank you for listening. Thank you.